having your currency be the world's currency brings you enormous advantages which you hold on for dear life as the United States is now doing. So yeah, to the question, does the empire that still exists, however informally, is that a basic part of American economic well-being? You bet. That's what keeps our profit system going. And in order not to be dependent on that, in order not therefore to be militarily active around the world, becoming a scourge and a burden and a threat, you would have to face the fact that a fundamental economic reorganization is necessary in the United States because the dependency, like an addiction, on empire runs very deep in capitalism and always has. To ending the myth. I'm Brian. And I'm Munya. And today we're going to discuss the most important international agreement that you likely have never heard of, the Bretton Woods Agreement. Now, the Bretton Woods Agreement set the rules for the capitalist world after the Second World War. And in order to help us understand this, because we are dumb and he is smart, we have a very special guest. Yeah, Richard D. Wolf is a professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs of the New School University in New York City. He is the founder of Democracy at Work and host of their nationally syndicated show, Economic Update. His latest book is The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, which can be found along with his other books, Understanding Socialism and Understanding Marxism, at Democracy at Work. Dot info. That's www.democracyatwork.info. <laughs> Professor Wolf, thank you so much for coming on today. And thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, just so we'll let people know, uh, Dr. Wolf's show, Economic Update, which is fantastic. There'll be links to all this stuff in the show notes. Make sure you go check out Democracy at Work and check out Economic Update. Uh, fantastic show. Been listening to it for a long time. I'm actually, this is part of my uh, leaping off point to argue that you guys should move back to an hour-long format. So, <laughs> we're still- yeah, as, as as patrons, we should turn like being patrons into like actual shareholders. Now we get I- we get we should get a seat on the board now. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but yes, you know, so at the close of the Second World War. You know, delegates from 44 countries met in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. They created, ultimately ended up creating what was called the Bretton Woods system or became the Bretton Woods system. And I guess, first off, since uh, this wasn't in my history textbook as a kid or anything like that, uh, 
what is the Bretton Woods system? What were they trying to create? Okay. Um, first of all, Bretton Woods is a place in New Hampshire, a very fancy hotel where uh, leading economists from around the world gathered, uh, as you say, at the end of World War II, um, and tried to fix what they perceived to be terrible basic structural flaws in the global economic system, particularly as it pertains to currencies and exchanging currencies one to another. You have to sort of keep in mind that across the previous 150 years, capitalism spread from where it began, you know, in England and Western Europe, uh, to become pretty much a global system or nearly so. Um, and therefore, with that process, international trade, a world market, had emerged in a way and on a scale that had never been seen before in human history. Uh, that is, modern capitalism developed the means of transportation, the means of communication, uh, and the, the, the intellectual, if you like, or cultural uh, apparatus to make a global economy, a world economy, and that meant lots of international trade. And that meant moving goods and services, and even to some extent people, uh, from one currency area to another. And remember, Europe is a place where countries are small, where it takes uh, literally a couple of hours and you're, you're out of France and you're in Germany or England or Italy or and, and every one of those has a different culture, a different history, different language, and so forth. And they also had different national currencies and different national monetary systems. So keep that in mind. At the same time as Bretton Woods comes in, there is this second notion wrapped up with the first that modern capitalism has also a very bad, dark side. The bad, dark side admitted then in a way that it has now conveniently been forgotten, admitted then was that we had just in one half of one century had the world's two worst global wars, killing many, many tens of millions of people, mostly in Europe, but even further afield in other parts of the world. You might want to keep that in mind because it has become fashionable to hold modern communism accountable, whether from Stalin or Mao, for their having been loss of life in Russia over there establishing their control or in China, and there is some truth to that. A lot of people died. What exactly the struggles were in which they died, we can have some debates, but there are people who died. However, keep in mind that at the end of World War II, everyone understood, left-wingers, right-wingers, and those in the middle, that capitalists and capitalism had no authority to point the finger at anybody else 
because they had managed to kill people on a scale nobody had ever imagined was possible. And remember, World War I, which is arguably a bigger killer than even World War II was, was a fight among capitalist economies over the division of the colonial world in large part that they competed to rip off. Uh, you know, it, it was the culmination of that famous conference in Berlin in 1884, where the leaders of Europe got together with a map, in this case of Africa, and carved it up. This would be the German part, the Belgian part, the French part, the British part, and so on. I mean, uh, an arrogance that the world has ever since kind of found jaw-dropping uh, at the notion of what, what you were doing. And, and then they would fight. Once they divided the world, then there were endless struggles to redivide it as their economies needed, exploding finally in a war. You know, the same impetus that led to the United Nations as a way to organize not to do that again in the second half of the 20th century, that same mentality was at, at, at play in Bretton Woods. But there the focus was more narrow. In the UN, it was creating the political structure. In Bretton Woods, it was more narrowly focused. How can we set up a global monetary system that is orderly, that everybody kind of subscribes to, all the different countries, and that will have in place a fixed system of converting one currency into another, that's literally called currency convertibility, so that every business can plan, if I'm going to be busy in foreign trade, I know how many euro uh, they didn't have euros then, but how many French francs I would get for a British pound, how many Deutschmark for a US dollar, how many Scandinavian kroners for a Japanese yen, and so on. So they set about developing global monetary system rules, which included, very famously, a fixed exchange rate. In other words, they all got together and said, this many dollars will get you that many French francs, or British pounds, or German marks, and so on, and that's it. No messing around with this, no supply and demand, none of that. Because allowing supply and demand, the quote-unquote free market, to operate before had been now viewed as complicit with the wars, with the destruction, with the horror. Keep that in mind because that was a crystal clear acceptance and that's the basis of everything that came out of, of Bretton Woods. And that's 19, you know, the mid to later 40s. By 1971, not that long later, 25 years later, one generation, we could have a president, Richard Nixon, who on August 15th, 1971, said, uh -huh, throw it out, no more Bretton Woods. <laughs> we, are, we are not going to accept fixed exchange rates. Uh, the way the fixed exchange rate was anchored was every currency was set at a particular rate to one ounce of gold. It was a gold-backed system. 
$42 got you one ounce of gold and an equivalent of every other currency uh, that was important in world trade. And Mr. Nixon simply said, that's it. We don't want this anymore. And so powerful was the United States, which is the last part of this that you have to understand. So dominant was the United States that by saying we won't, it was gone. It, 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 you know, all of the uh, so-called rules of consultation and working things out, all of that went kapoof out the window. Nobody cared. The United States called the shot. And this is crucial, partly that you understand the history, but even more important is that you understand today, because it isn't true anymore today, and Americans can't handle it. They can't get their head around it. They're practicing what psychologists call massive denial. Uh, they're imagining, they get imagining that they have what they don't anymore. Look, it's a very human thing. If you're used to something, you're king of the hill, and then you aren't, uh, that's difficult, especially if you've had it a long time. So the United States comes out of World War II. This is the last part of the history of Bretton Woods. And sure, there were other people there who had different ideas. For example, the most famous economist uh, at Bretton Woods was John Maynard Keynes. He was the official uh, leader of the British delegation. And Britain, remember, was on the downside of its empire, but it was still a major empire. It still controlled much of Africa, India, those countries had not yet fought and achieved genuine independence. Some of them were in the middle of it at that time, but it, you know, uh, it, it was still the great British empire. And by the way, they've had as big a problem of denial as Americans have had. Uh, the only difference being it's lasted longer and it looks more ridiculous now than ever. You know, can't attest I mean, to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Tony Blair uh, was called during his time as prime minister, uh, Washington's poodle, because, <laughs> you know, and every leader since has been called Washington's poodle. And the current clown, excuse me, prime minister, <laughs> Boris Johnson, is a super poodle. You know, they're, 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 he, he's not just a poodle to Washington, he's a poodle to Trump. Washington, you know, and literally patterns himself after uh, after that, although the difference is he's now collapsing. Uh, Trump didn't quite yet manage yep. that. Anyway, think of it this way. The only conceivable competitors economically in the world to the United States after World War I destroyed Europe, because that's where the war was basically fought, uh, the only conceivable uh, competitors were the Japanese, who didn't get figure in World War One very as a major player, and the Germans because of their capability of rebuilding, which has always been remarkable. Uh, but they were then wiped out in, in World War Two. So by the end of World War Two, there is no competitor for the United States. Don't make the mistake of thinking the Cold War was between equals. It wasn't. That was a Cold War between David and Goliath. Uh, the United States was Goliath, and the Soviet Union was nothing. It, 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 
it, it militarily had, had developed nuclear weapons, and that's, of course, very important. But they were never an economic competitor. The United States had no such thing. Uh, it was completely in control. Uh, the rest of the world depended on the United States. The Marshall Plan literally was welfare for Europe from the United States to get those economies going again. Um, and so the United States called the shots. And when John Maynard Keynes made a whole set of proposals that Washington didn't like, they ignored him. And a very, <laughs> a very obscure, a very obscure American with none of the credentials as an economist, ironically, a man named Harry Dexter White, who was later persecuted. No relation. <laughs> uh, he was later persecuted for being uh, a Soviet sympathizer, just to give you how complicated all of this is. Yeah. And he lost his, he, he wasn't one, but he lost his job in the anti, you know, McCarthyite, anti-communist hysteria of those years. Um, but the United States called all the shots so that when Mr. Nixon took us off uh, the gold standard, that's it. That was the end of it. And henceforth, to this day, uh, the way the, the value of a currency is set is in the marketplace by the demand and supply. If people want more dollars, the value of the dollar goes up. If the people want less, uh, by people, I mean, of course, people wealthy enough to be relevant for international <laughs> currency, which is mostly big banks, insurance companies, large corporations, and governments, governments, inter, you know, go in and buy and sell currencies to manage them in their own interest. It was that very government manipulation that was seen to have helped cause World Wars One and Two, which Bretton Woods was supposed to get us away from. So what we have done, geniuses that modern <laughs> capitalists are, is gone back to what we rejected, and we're now discovering that between the United States and Europe and Japan, there are growing disagreements about what currency values should be, growing interventions in the currency markets that are not coordinated, largely because the United States doesn't have the muscle, doesn't have the power to get other to play the game. And finally, an altogether new situation. For the first time in a century, the United States has a serious, powerful economic competitor. And that is the People's Republic of China, who have nuclear weapons, who have a population four times larger than the United States, and the ability to develop every technology we have only better and this situation and this situation well i mean let yeah, me yeah. give you an let me give because people americans are so befuddled in this area which is why a program like yours is so important that they don't understand because they don't want to the basic dimensions i'm going to give you one example the most important communication in the world right now is wireless communicate the ability to send voices to send data and to send images wirelessly around the planet 
there are five companies that dominate the business of making the equipment that allows wireless communication to become the dominant communication on this planet. Five companies. Mm-hmm. Here they are. The number one, by far the biggest, is called, and you've heard their name, Huawei. Mm-hmm. They control 30% alone of this business. After them, Nokia, a Finnish company from Finland. After that, Ericsson, a Swedish company. After that, ZTE, a Chinese company. And coming in fifth out of five, Cisco Systems, the American contender, has already lost. (laughs) I'm just being nice by cutting it off at five. If I had cut it off at four, what? Now, China, Finland, and Sweden are mostly referred to in the world as socialist economic systems. They have four out of the top five private companies in this business. The United States has lost that struggle. And you can guess, if you have half a brain, why we arrest the executives of the Huawei company, why we ban it, why we do everything to undermine the leader Mm -hmm. by using the government, which those of you with libertarian tendencies ought to think about for a while. (laughs) The only only sad thing about America, besides violating all the government shall not intervene horse shit, is that they don't do it very well when they do it. (laughs) I mean, yeah. whoa. Well, well okay. for who, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, and then one last thing. The U.S. excuse for why they were going after Huawei, sellable only to the American gullible denying public, was the, the argument made by the president on down that Huawei has linkages to the Chinese military. <laughs> yeah, you not, should not laugh. like American tech companies. Yeah, they yeah. have no connection to military. All I'm going yes, to say to you is if you're interested in, in, in documenting horse shit, go to the website of the Cisco Corporation, where you will see many pages celebrating all the things that they do together with the Department of Defense in this. I mean, the level of self delusional crap in this field is so dense that you'll have to have 20 programs getting on people, all kinds of people, to help dispel the self-delusional fog that enshrouds all of this stuff. Anyway, it was an attempt to bring order. And there was order, but it wasn't the order of Bretton Woods. That was just a formality. It was the order of the United States. It called the shots, it named the tune, it ran the system, and nobody else could hold a candle to it. I mean, give you an example. There's an international system for moving money. Uh, If you're a company and you buy something from the Netherlands, uh, you know, tulip bulbs from the Netherlands, and they send you a shipment, you pay for it, and you use something called the SWIFT system, 
SWIFTs. You may have encountered it if you've had to move money internationally or if you've had to be paid by somebody in a foreign country that you did a service for, whatever. All right, yeah, I can assure you Amer- that's not been a problem for us. <laughs> okay. that's, but the whole world has to yeah. use it. Yes. And the United States runs it. And that means the United States can track every transaction. You send 50 bucks to your cousin Harry because he needs it. And the government here knows that you did that. Not only that, they can block you from using it. They can ban you, which means if you're a company, suddenly your customers can't pay you the way they did before. You know know what that has done? It has meant that everybody has to use the American system. It means every country in the world accumulates dollars because it became the international currency. In a way, even beyond what the British pound had been during the time of the British Empire's a dominance of this sort. Uh, and, that, and that's a wonderful gift to the United States. Here's how that works. Uh, I'm an American. I buy a case of wine from some French company that grows the wine and makes the wine. So I send them dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Under normal circumstances, those dollars I send there would in turn find their way into the hands of a French person who would use the dollars to buy something from the United States. And so when you net out the dollar, I've had to, I, an American, I had to produce real value to get the the wine. I got real value, wine, and somebody used the dollars to buy something my fellow Americans made. But if you are the if you are the hegemon in the world, if you run the monetary system, everybody needs to accumulate dollars, which allows you to get wine, real value, send them little green pieces of paper that are worth absolutely nothing, cost nothing to produce. <laughs> look at that piece of paper in your wallet. You find it very serious. But if you actually look at it, It's useful as maybe a substitute for toilet paper. It has no function, right? So now the rest of the world accumulates, though. Every bank in the world uses dollars, moves the money around because it can satisfy lots of its different customers with one global currency. Why? Because everybody needs the dollar, and therefore it's as good as gold. And and so if you look at every central bank, the Bank of England, the Bank of France, the Bank of Germany, the Bank of Italy, any of them. They keep reserves, the backing for their own currency, either as dollars or as gold, you know, at least most of the time. They're now beginning to use euros. Some of them may use a little bit of yen and even now a little bit of the Chinese currency because of the importance of China. But it used to be just the United States, There were even countries which allowed the dollar to be the local currency alongside of their own or instead. In the Mm. Caribbean, in Latin America, there were countries and and for periods of time where if you went into a restaurant and had a meal, you could either pay with the local currency or put a $10 bill in their hand. They were equally happy because they were basically – nobody else had that right. Nobody could – send over little green pieces of paper in exchange for really valuable human product. 
So it's an enormous boost. All of that is going away because the United States is not the top dog anymore. It barks like it thinks it is, but it isn't. And the other dogs in the neighborhood are figuring it out. (laughs) Well, Dr. Wolf, I I think that's like such a good overview of like Bretton Woods all the way to, you know, uh, Nixon. Um, And I I like what you said about the dollar being as good as gold, because before um, Bretton Woods, right, like the dollar was floated, right? But then... During Blenheim Woods, um, you know, the dollar was actually pegged to gold. Is 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 that like the reason to like for the U.S. to go back to the gold standard after the 19th century when you know it was the gold standard, then it wasn't, then it is again, right? And then of course with Nixon, he floats it. Was that pegging of gold just because it was becoming like the hegemon of um, you know, you know, the world and the global currency? Because I know that Keynes wanted an actual like uh, international currency. Am I right? Like he he didn't U.S dollar necessarily to be there yeah mr keynes was a loyal british citizen and if britain couldn't run the world he didn't want anyone else to do it (laughs) uh so you know with all due respect um the united states was not gonna forego all of the benefits of being the hegemon but i don't think i don't think the setting of the of the gold value really had much to do with with the history uh, of money. It had to do with the sense that whatever was in place leading into World War I and then again World War II had to go. That that was so bad. That was so awful. But here, keep this in mind. Um, The problem was never (laughs) the money. That is, the problem of money and of exchange is a problem, no question. But it's a problem on the surface of the system. This is not the core. The core of capitalism is a way of producing everything, all the goods, all the services. It's a particular way of organizing us as human beings because we do that. We produce things. Animals don't really do that. They certainly don't do it in the way that we do. We organize everything, our food, our clothing, our shelter. Uh, We make it. We do not rely on finding it or anything like that. Okay, we make it. The question is, how do we do that? That's the fundamental economic question. How do we organize the production of goods and services and then their distribution? because it's not enough to produce it. If there's an immense pile of potatoes 20 miles away, if if there's no way to get those potatoes to me, uh, I'm going to starve to death, even though we've produced them. So you got to produce them and you got to distribute them. Those are the two big problems, right? And in my judgment, and here's where my particular approach to economics, I want to put that on the table. What I'm about to say is not agreed to by other economists or many of them. Uh, For me, the crucial question is what the person I've learned the most from calls um, the relations of production, the interpersonal relations. And here's how we do it in capitalism. We take a tiny group of people, the individual or the family that started the business, maybe, or at least the individual or the family that owns the business, whether they started it or not, or 
the board of directors, if we have a corporate form, the board of directors elected by the shareholders, the tiny groups of people, one, two, six, nine, a board of directors, maybe 20 people, we're talking very little numbers, they make all the decisions. They hire the vast majority of us who are employees, and they give us a task, and they tell us what to do, where to do it, how to do it, when to do it, when to get the hell out of the workplace, go home, beer, pizza, come back the next day, do it all again. All the key decisions of production are made by a tiny minority, utterly unaccountable to the majority who are the employees. It's not only not democratic, it's a textbook definition of the opposite of democracy. It's an autocracy of an unaccountable tiny group of people. They are not accountable to the, even though how the production works, the conditions of production, the pace of production, everything impacts the people who have no power over any of it even to the point where the employer can say to the employee, get lost. Don't come back here Monday morning. You're done. I'm taking from you the job. I'm taking from you the income. I'm taking from you the sustenance of your family, the impact of your joblessness on the community. I don't give a crap. I don't have to. It's an extraordinary system. I wouldn't wish this on an enemy, let alone celebrate it. But I live in a country that requires that we celebrate this horror. And by the way, it likes to say how different it is from feudalism or slavery. But it isn't. Because look at the similarities. In slavery, you got a tiny group of people called masters and a vast army of people called slaves. And they're in a very similar relationship. And then in feudalism, you got the lords and the serfs. We made a big thing of the American and French Revolution. We overthrew serfdom. Yeah, but we brought in another version of a tiny group of people with all the decision-making power telling all the rest of us how to function in the product, in the production and distribution of good. For me, there lies the root of the conflict, the tension, the waste, the catastrophe. And therefore, you will excuse me, you'll understand. Yes, I can tell you everything you want to know about the Bretton Woods. I had to learn all that stuff. I've had to teach it all my life. But for me, these are problems here. It's like getting terribly excited about getting rid of Donald Trump and acquiring Joseph Biden. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad Trump is gone. I am. I prefer Mr. Biden. I do. But I know what I'm getting, and I know what I'm not getting. I'm not getting anyone who's able to criticize on any level the economic system, who is a devoted servant of that system, has been cashing in on that system from the day he was born to this moment, and to expect him to make a basic change means there's something wrong with you. Uh, you know, really, yeah. Uh, yeah. for me, it is, I'm sitting here. No, no it's true. Yeah. You know, it's just, and, and, and I should identify myself for your audience if they don't know. I, 
I'm a product of America's elite educational institutions. I went to Harvard as an undergraduate. Then I did graduate work in economics at Stanford in California. And then I came back and finished and got several master's degree and a PhD in economics at Yale, right? So Harvard, Stanford, it's like a joke. I'm a walking, <laughs> I'm a walking poodle of elitism. And, and you and did then, go to you were classmates with uh, the the current chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. Am I right? Uh, she's the Treasury Secretary now, but yes, she was the head of the Yeah, she was the well. It's music at those levels. It's it's musical chairs. You, you play the national anthem, and you see who sits in what chair. But you know, <laughs> it, it, it's not serious. Janet Yellen was a classmate of mine. All these people know me personally. I know them because it's a small circle. It's a very I was about to say the old boy network, but it now has women in it. Uh, used to not have any women in it. When I was going to school at Yale, there were maybe two women in a class of 20. I mean, it was real tiny. Janet Yellen was memorable because, you know, she was female and, and that was rare at that time. Uh, but anyway, I'm a, I'm a product. They tried to get me to celebrate capitalism from the day I arrived as an 18-year-old undergraduate. They did their level best. I had some good teachers and all of that. Uh, they really tried. They tried hard, but it didn't take. I didn't understand. <laughs> I, I kept asking questions. They didn't have the answer. Yeah. They kept they kept making noises like the question wasn't appropriate. So I would ask, you well, well why not? I mean, to, Explain to me why I shouldn't have this question. They couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, and some of them tried, but it just didn't. So I've been a critic, and I don't mean to be nasty or to be you know, uh, a person who's obnoxious, but there is a part of me that would like to lean across the table these days, look people like that in the face and say, I told you so. <laughs> hey, that's what the, we're all in the game for. Yeah, because, <laughs> the, 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 because for me, for people like me, this system is falling apart. Mm -hmm. the, the, the hegemony of the United States, it's over. The empire of the United States. We've had three major wars in the last generation. Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And we have the distinction of having lost them all. <laughs> you know, what in the... I mean, you've got to be deaf, blind... Uh, dumb in all the senses of that word, etc., not to notice something. You mm -hmm. know, you go to war against China suddenly with Mr. Trump, tariff war, trade war, arrest the Huawei, uh, the guy who started Huawei, his daughter is an executive, arrest her, make the Canadians hold her for a couple of years. I mean, childish junk. That's not the, the horror of it, although it's part of the story. The horror of it is it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You're not the Chinese haven't adjusted their economic system to where the United States would like it. Yeah. They've given Mr. Trump the same middle finger that they gave Mr. Biden. You know, you don't have the means to force it. You just don't. Mm -hmm. And you're not about to get it. Yeah. I mean, let me let me drive it home this way. For the last 30 years, the average annual growth of the American economy, GDP growth per annum, has, has oscillated between 2 and 3%. Yeah. Okay? Over the same 30-year period, same period, same years, 
the growth of the GDP in the People's Republic of China has oscillated between 6 and 9% per year. Uh, hello, for a generation, three times faster. What are you going to do with that? That's the most spectacular economic growth performance in human history. You got to stop. You got to deal with this. But I can tell from your faces <laughs> that you don't hear this very often. But you should. It's not a minor matter. Let me give you another one. Over the last 25 years, real wages. We economists measure that. That's the amount of money wage you get adjusted for what you have to pay when you spend that money to, to buy your, you know, your food, your clothing, your shelter. So it's a measure of how much stuff you can actually afford to buy with whatever wage you're getting. Real wages in the United States stagnated. That's the word we use. That's a nice way of saying they didn't go anywhere. That's why you can say this remarkable sentence that the average wage in the United States today, real wage, is not significantly higher than it was at the end of the 1970s. Yeah. How have, the, how have Americans been able to maintain a rising standard of living since then, which they have? Answer. You know the answer. That. We have become, <laughs> here's the answer, American working people became the most indebted working class in the history of the world. Suddenly, in the 1970s, everybody got a credit card. Everybody, mm -hmm. right? So now we have mortgages, so you're up to your eyeballs in debt for your housing. Car payments, you're up to your eyeballs in debt for your car. Credit card, you're up to eyeballs for the for the water you get at the corner bodega. <laughs> and the new one, and the new one, college students. To get a college degree, we require you to load up on tens of thousands of dollars of debt. Let me read again if you're not aware. Other societies have not gone down this sewer. In Germany, to get a degree in Germany, uh, undergraduate or graduate, the tuition is the following. Zero. School fees. Here we go. Zero. All you got to do is pay your room and board, which you would have had to do anyway, unless you committed suicide. So you're taking care of yourself, but the university is a public service. And having visited and given talks at German universities, let me assure you that the quality of their education doesn't have to worry about competition from the United States. <laughs> it never did. So, by the way, that free education is not only available to a German citizen. It's available to anyone. Um, there are 20,000 Americans, by last count, who are getting their education there because that way they won't have a debt load over them for the rest of their lives. Seven other countries in Europe either are zero cost or trivial. In France, it's something like 250 bucks per semester to go to the university. All right. Here's another example. If you have this one, I'm going to take from France. 
by the way, my, my father was French. My mother was German. I speak those languages. I was born in Ohio, but English is my third language because I grew up with my European parents. So in France, once you graduate either from high school or college and you take your first job, the law, the law requires your employer to give you five weeks of paid vacation every year. That's not a union contract. That's not a commitment of the employer. He either does that or he goes to jail. <laughs> Americans, America, I, I explain this to my American audiences. They stare at me and their eyes give them away. They don't want to believe this because yeah. they kind of know where this is going to take them. And then quickly before they can recover, I tell them that, you know, months of maternal and paternal leave, if you have a baby, if you have an elderly person, you need to take care. Those are laws. Not, again, they're not dependent on an employer who may give it and take it at pleasure. Mm -mm -mm. These are laws. And they were accomplished in almost all cases by socialists. And then I come in for the kill. I say to my American audiences, are you aware that last month there was an election in Germany? Most of them aren't. Why should they be? You know, Germany is far away, so on the moon or something. Anyway, uh, some of them know. And I say, are you aware of what, of the party that got the most votes, the number one party in Germany? No. So let me tell you, it's a socialist party. <laughs> what? Yeah. The so that's the number one. Yeah. Yeah. Then I say, have you ever heard of a country called Portugal? Yes, of course. Well, the Portuguese have a, a coalition government. Uh, three parties won the elections in 2016 and were reelected by a bigger margin last year in 2020. And here are the three parties that together govern Portugal. The largest one is the Portuguese Socialist Party. The second largest one is the Portuguese Communist Party. And the third one is the Portuguese Green Party. My audience, you could hear a pin Not drop. Not a bad coalition. No, you could hear a pin drop. <laughs> and then I say what I want them to understand is what's important is not that socialists are powerful in Europe. They are everywhere. What's important is that you didn't know this. You had no idea. You live in a society that not for nothing leaves all of this stuff out. Yeah. Makes it something that maybe appears in the last paragraph on page 16 of the New York Times, which nobody gets to. Right? It, it, whoa. Whoa. Be, by the way, these are all signs of system decline of system decay. You know, they, they are as profound signs as having uh, people like Elon Musk and Jeffrey Bezos uh, possess $200 billion. I mean, it, it, their ridiculousness becomes obscenity, but yeah, hey. these, are, these are signs of a system that... We have one not in our city here. Yeah. <laughs> It's obscene. Yeah, yeah. The poverty in Seattle versus having Jeff Bezos and fucking Bill Gates here is yeah. obscene. Although I understand that uh, Miss uh, Sawant uh, 
Yes. Got, got yep. through. Yeah. Yes. She is our longest sitting council member. She's only been allowed to serve her full term without having to run for election again because the rich assholes in the city force her into a bullshit election one time. And every time she wins. <laughs> I think four times elected now. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it, it's, sure. it's pretty miraculous. And so, you know, it's it, it, it does give um, a lot of hope in that uh, respect that, you yeah. know, um, yeah, someone has been. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I, I should encourage you too, though, you know, all kidding aside, I, I'm overwhelmed. I've been a critic of capitalism, as I told you, most of my adult life. But in the last 10 years, literally from 2011 to now, uh, suddenly from being barely tolerable on the margins of what people are talking about, despite all my fancy pedigree education, suddenly in the last 10 years... Uh, I can't handle the flow of opportunities <laughs> to speak, to speak, to write, to publish. To I mean, it is, I do two to four interviews like this one every day. I mean, it's just, you know, and let me be real honest with you. You ready? Yeah. We'll see. Yep. I'm having the time of my life. <laughs> you, you waited so long to find water and now it's here you know yeah, yeah. i mean <laughs> suddenly you know i've been a teacher all my life i've been an academic i've taught at the university but now my audience is uh, umpteen times larger and enthusiastic for what it is i have to offer it's not just that the audiences are many and large they are but they they're eager they want they're hungry you know, and I, I have this wonderful opportunity to say, look, let me explain this stuff. And that's what they want. They want this stuff that has been fuzzy and murky and unclear, which, by the way, not their fault. I mean, the, the reportage, I'm being polite in this, and I read them every day, you know, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, I, I go over it all every day. It's awful. It's just awful. And, you know, th there are a few people who kind of get it. But they're lost in the in the noise, and so it's very hard. You, know, yeah. you can you if you find them, stay with them. There are people who are thoughtful, even on places like the Wall Street Journal, and so on. But you have to find them, and then you have to separate them out from the the yeah. noise. Well, if I could just ask a quick question, I, I'd be a little remiss if we didn't talk about your your new book. You have a collection of essays out called "The Sickness of the System." And on our sister podcast, Mechanical Freak, where we talk about like current issues, COVID and capitalism has been a big discussion point uh, since sure. this thing happened. And I guess uh, in the most, uh, you know, boil it down for us, because we've been talking about this for months now. Why is the COVID response in America actually capitalism's fault? <laughs> okay, good. Let me do that. Because you're, you're right. That, that's a key point. So let's begin, though, just with the end, with the punchline. The United States' population, roughly 330 million people, works out to about 4.5% of the global population of this planet. So we have 4.5% of the people, and we account for 16% of the deaths from COVID. That's called failure. Whatever other word you put on for a rich country, which we are, with a highly developed medical system, which we have, 
That performance, unspeakable. That's a problem of a system. We obviously have the capacity to deal with this problem, as well as all those other countries. Since I'm on a roll with China, let me stay with China. China's population is four times, actually more than, but at least four times larger than the U.S., somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.3 billion, and we have 330 million. I mean, no contest. They report during the pandemic to date, 8,000 deaths. We report 800,000 deaths. I mean, we have 1%. I mean, they have 1% of the deaths we have. What in the world? That's a poorer country than this one by a lot. It has a less developed medical system. But here's what it did. It mobilized its public and private resources to attack this problem with everything they had. They shut down Wuhan, the city where it was supposed to have begun. They shot down that province within which Wuhan is the capital city. They practiced lockdown. By the way, other countries did it very effectively too. New Zealand, under their remarkable leader, Jacinda uh, Ardern, they did the same and have the same ridiculous numbers compared to us. So it's not a question you have to be a socialist society. all kinds of countries did pretty well, uh, but we did awful. Britain did awful, you know, doing awful now. All right. So now let's show how capitalism was involved. Let's begin with getting ready for COVID. Should we have gotten ready? Yes, of course we should have. We know that the world is beset by viruses. A hundred years ago, which is not exactly ancient history, we had at the end of World War I something called the Spanish flu in the United States. It started in 1918, lasted a couple of years. It killed 700,000 people. That's not that much less than have died from COVID, but it's a bigger percentage because our country was much smaller back then than it is now because of the population growth. So we know that what a virus can do, we've suffered it, we've gone through it. There are a thousand books and articles about the Spanish flu. By the way, it started at an army, U.S. Army base in Kansas, just for the record. Okay, so we know. We also know that recently there have been Ebola virus, there have been MERS in the Middle East, and so forth. So viruses, medical schools have courses on the medicine to be used in cases of virus. Come on. What did we need in the United States? Everybody knew that too. We needed to have testing equipment. We needed to have ventilators. We needed to have masks because that's a very old technology of coping and nothing new about it. And we needed them produced and we needed them stockpiled around the country. So if a virus occurred, we could have, uh, we didn't have any of that. Zilch, no stockpiled, nowhere. Well, let's see now. Let's analyze why we didn't. Why were we so unprepared? Answer. It's not profitable for a capitalist to do that. And let me explain. By the way, it isn't. This is quite true. Mm -hmm. I agree with this analysis. Here's the problem. Suppose you're a capitalist who makes, I'll pick something, masks. 
you know, the things we're all wearing these days. Okay, if you're a capitalist who makes masks, you know how to make them. You can hire the people and buy the cotton and buy the machines. And, and then what would you do? You'd have, you know, millions of these masks. You'd have to store them in warehouses around the country. And for how, and, and by the way, when they're in the warehouse, you have to monitor them, make sure the temperature is right, make sure they keep clean, uh, that they're in usable condition. You have enormous expenses. And when will you be able to sell these things? Who the hell knows? I don't know when the next virus is coming. Nobody else does either. So you're going to lay out an enormous amount of money to produce them and to store them. And for how long? Uh, if I'm a businessman, if I'm told that when I got my MBA in, in this business school that profit is why I'm in business, profit is my bottom line, this looks like a very bad proposition. I got to lay out a shitload of money and I got to wait an indefinite period of time to find out how much I can get. And by that time, maybe people will be making masks <laughs> in China for a, a fraction of what I make them for. So I'm, I'm not doing it. My capitalist calculation of profit maximization says don't make masks for viruses. Go make something else, which is what they did. So it was the logic of capitalism that led us not to be prepared. Mm -hmm. Well, here, here's a solution we could have done. We could have had the government come in, take away all the risk. Here's how the government does that. It goes to the company and says, we will back a truck up to the back of your mask factory and we will buy and load up the masks as fast as you produce them. So you have no risk. Here's the price we'll pay. Here's the cost you have to make them. Here's a healthy profit for you. And we, the government, will then store them and maintain them in, uh, you know, in warehouses located properly where population is in the country. How do we know that the government could do that? We know that because the government already does it. But it's in a different industry. The industry is called defense, yeah. which is bullshit because it's offense that it ought to be called, but we can't handle that. So well, let's go along with the charade defense. Here's how it works. A capitalist could make a missile. But here's the problem. After you've made the missile, what are you going to do with it? You're going to have to store it someplace in a warehouse where you're going to have to secure it and clean it and monitor it and test it. And for how long? Well, who the hell knows when the next war is coming, <laughs> when somebody will want it, like the government. So you don't know. So the government realizes if it left to the capitalist, the profit-driven decision, no missiles, no bombers, no aircraft carriers would ever be produced. It's too risky. It's not profitable enough. So what does the government do? It cuts a deal with a defense producer. We, the government, will buy the missile as fast as you produce it. We'll pay you a big fat price. You'll make a ton of money. You'll be a company like, let's see, General Dynamics, Raytheon, General Electric. You, you all know them. Yep. And you'll make a... But and then the government, using our tax money, will store the missile and monitor it 
for, well, mostly for so long that it becomes obsolete and has to be replaced by another one. Yep. Whoa. So the interesting question isn't why the government isn't doing it for the virus, because we know the answer. This society puts more value on the defense industry than it does on its own health. And keep that in mind when I remind you of a statistic. COVID has killed more people than World Wars I and II combined. More Americans, not more people in the world, more Americans. So we are, in fact, more in danger from COVID than from, but we do for the defense what we didn't do for COVID. That's a problem of capitalism. But now it gets even worse, coping with it. If I had time, I would go through a detail, but I'm going to make it real simple. The best solutions so far have not been the vaccines. They've been the lockdowns, shutting everything down, guaranteeing everybody who got it, don't go to work, don't go to the restaurant, don't go to the movies, all of that. But we'll continue to pay your wages. We will maintain your benefit. Don't worry. You're not in danger. We've just got to defeat this disease. And the way we're going to do it is prevent it from moving from one body to the next one, because that's how the virus lives. Okay. They did that in Australia. They did it in New Zealand. They did it in China. They did it and fill in the blank. That's the best strategy. But of course, it has a bad consequence. Every business is now effectively shut down. Either its workers can't come or its customers can't come, or at least much less than before, and that's going to eat into their profits unless they happen to be a delivery company, which makes hay out of this situation, which is why Amazon is what it is. Okay, So you have to be willing to do that. In most countries, particularly the United States, but also in many others, the business community can't handle that. They don't want that. They don't want a lockdown. They they want to dispute whether you the disease is really that bad. Or and you know, you can understand why. It's no compliment to them. But they figure, all right, if John and Mary drop dead from COVID, I got Harry and Louise that I'll hire in their place. I mean, it's too bad for them, but I know how I'm going to solve the problem. There's lots of more workers out there. Uh, we have unemployment. And blah, 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 blah. I can. Uh, I, I, I don't want this. And they make sure to squeeze the politicians that they already own anyway, uh, to militate against lockdowns, to end them too early. Uh, we're discovering now. And on and on and on. This is, this is a horrible system. And you know what it means? It means that what we can't do in the United States is what the Chinese are excelling at. We don't have any way to mobilize public and private resources so that together we go after the problem. When we have done that in this country, and we have on occasion, the results have been spectacular. This country, for example, mobilized for World War II. And when it did, 
I just want to remind you, the government of the United States to fight World War II against the Nazis and the Japanese took over the railroad system, yeah. took over the highway system, just took it over and ran it so that it would maximally produce the guns and planes and bullets to fight the war. Okay, I'm not arguing for and against the strategy, but it was a time when you understood, let's see here, we want to, so we're going to mobilize, and everybody who said, I don't want to do it, I don't want the railroads to be, yeah, screw you, Jack, that's what's going to happen. And, and you know, there weren't that many Jacks when it wasn't popular, when there wasn't a social force to say, okay, you can be an anti-vaxxer, or okay, you can be an anti-masker, there weren't too many of those people around. You need a special kind of society to allow that, and you need forces in the society. When you mobilize a society, when you do that properly, the number of people who object is very small. And they're, they're, even sometimes you wish they were larger, that's a different matter. But you have to encourage, you have to have a lot of dysfunction to allow those folks uh, to come forward. You know, it, it's very yeah. strange. Yeah, and I think we've seen that dysfunction uh, for yeah. Maybe that's why so many people are calling you for interviews now. Yeah, um, no, I, I think what, what it is is that if, if I could opinionate about myself for a moment, because I've been asking myself, it's that people somewhere, Americans I'm talking about, they somewhere know something big is going on. They don't know what it is, they, 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 and they wish they could get it better, but they know that, that there's something happening and that the conventional story doesn't, doesn't cut the mustard, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't do the job. And so the kind of person in the past they wouldn't have paid attention to me, to people like me, are suddenly, maybe this guy has something that'll help me understand what the hell's going on. And I, I think, you know, it's my job to hopefully hold them their interest so that they can get it. And so you can see when I talk that I'm constantly trying to use examples from the news, from stuff that's in their head already, so I can link in and make the arguments on the big subject emerge from the little things we talk about, so they make sense to people, and they're partly their own achievement of putting the, putting the elements together. But I think that that's the reason, and that there's a sense, even though they can't put it in English, that something big is changing. And and I would argue it, that they're right, that the empire is over. The 100 years riding up in the United States was a heady ride, very exciting, positive for many, if not our African-American brothers and sisters. Um, but now we're going down. And when you go down, things get real troubled because everybody's terribly anxious that they're going to lose theirs and they would like to see someone else lose his or hers, not theirs. And it starts right at the top. That's why you have, you know, Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos. They don't even understand that they should be in the forefront of handing out billions. Won't make any difference to them, but it would transform their reputation. They don't get that. That's why they're busy spending 
big bucks to ride in a rocket ship for eight and a half minutes. You know, this is a level of self-destructive dumbness that usually goes with system decline. Everybody is maneuvering to offload the costs of a decline onto somebody else. Mm. And man, what that does is push down to the bottom levels of suffering and denial, which the defeat of the Build Back Better is only going to make worse. And that may help the Republicans in the next election. I get that. But that ain't going to solve any of the problems. And that's what defeated Trump. And so you can just see the oscillation between the two clowns as part of the decline. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think, you know, that is uh, the typically uh, sad or downbeat note we like to end on. (laughs) But it's about beat in there. You know, let, let, let me just intervene one moment. Yep. There is stuff to be very, very happy about, really. Yes. Um, a quarter of the American labor force quit their jobs over the last six months. That is amazing. They basically remembered that song, that country and Western song of a few years ago, whose big line was, take this job and shove it. <laughs> And uh, yeah, uh, that that's it. You just made me risk my life going to work. You made me risk bringing my the COVID into my home where my husband or my wife or my children are. You said I was an essential worker saving this country. And yet you pay me shit and you treat me this way. Uh, no, no. And yeah, I know it may be hard for me to get a job, but you are not going to, no, no. That's, listen, that's the first step in what other people would dare to call a revolution. This is a, this is right there, real close to your to your body, to your mind. It's a personal commitment. It, whoa. And we see the greatest wave of strikes in this country that we've seen in years. John Deere, Kellogg, Nabisco. I mean, you can go on and on, and most of them never see the light of day in the media anyway. Uh, I have a friend, Mike Elk, I don't know if you know him, who has this thing called Payday Report, where he keeps track of strikes. 1,700 he's counted since the pandemic began. This is amazing stuff. And I can assure you, both in terms of my audience, Sorry, is that, still, is that 1,700 in the U.S. alone? Yes, in the U.S. strikes that he knows of. He, should, he tells you why it's an underestimate because he relies on Google searches and news feeds. A lot of these things don't ever get into even the local newspaper. Mm-hmm. When 20 people walk out of a school or refuse to go to work uh, at Starbucks or whatever it is, the, the, this is an amazing, there's, there's a labor movement. And I want to remind you, the Great Depression hit in 1929, but the labor movement didn't get going till 1933, basically. But it, once it got going, it produced the greatest unionization drive in American history. The CIO, allied together with two socialists and one communist party, put together the New Deal. They went to Mr. Roosevelt and said, you better do this or you're out of here. I mean, and we give him the credit because it's how we write history. But without that mass below, he would never have been able to do it. 
And you know the proof of it is? Right now, there is no support yeah. for Mr. Biden. And he's not willing to go out and mobilize the streets. He never has. That's not who he is. So he's trying to do it with just the Democratic Party. <laughs> Hopeless. <laughs> you have to be in the street every day. Yeah. If, you read, if you read newspapers in New York City of those years, the 1930s, you'll see that there were people marching to Union Square or down Broadway or in the Brooklyn, you know, every day. Every day you'd see people marching. You couldn't get away from it. And that mobilized. They could see this was a chance. There were a lot of people. Where are the people mobile? Where's the labor movement? Nowhere. Where's the Democratic Party? What? There's no mobilization at all. So, mm-hmm. you know, the Republicans are looking at this. I don't got anything to worry about. I don't have to, I don't have to support Build Back Better. There's no mass... I'm not losing anything here. Fuck you. Yeah. you know, it's it's yeah. just a, a, it's tragic. It's just a tragic self-destruction. But it's a system where these two parties have been playing musical chairs for so long that who are we to expect them to, to leap out of the old role and to do what's necessary? Well, and, you know, it, it is a result, I would argue, of, the capitalist class essentially like winning the class war of the 20th century as well so now you know the labor movement was just like beaten down essentially to the point where there's just nothing so now you know the two parties are just run and controlled by the capitalist class in general too, yeah right? well remember so. remember that's our history you know you asked at the beginning about Bretton woods the much more important activity of the ruling class in this country in those years was to destroy the New Deal coalition. They knew it wasn't Roosevelt. He's, after all, one of them. They knew it was the CIO, the labor movement, the two socialists, and the communists. So they went about destroying that coalition. That was a logical thing to do. And they picked the weakest link, the Communist Party, uh, converted them in the public mind from the militants who led the walkouts and led the strikes which they often were, to being agents of Moscow. You had scary, you know, you got rid of them. Then you went around the United States telling everybody that socialists are just like communists. They just spell it differently. Oh, okay. So you got rid of them. And then you, when you got rid of those parts of the coalition, you then went to work at a slow and steady erosion of the labor movement, which is now a pale shadow of what it was back then. This, this this is our history as a nation, and the answer to it is you got to rebuild those organizations or new versions of them. Uh, otherwise, you're not you're not really serious about all this. Yeah, well, I think that you know for our generation or whatever, that is our historic task is rebuilding yep. these organizations, yep. and that's a hopeful note. We'll leave on yeah. that. Uh, Richard Wolf. Thank you so much for making time in your day to talk to us. It sounds like you're very busy. Thank you for talking to us. So listeners, look, if you're not listening to Economic Update or watching on YouTube, what are you doing with your life? Uh, Make sure Economic Update, you're checking it out. Uh, Make sure that you check out Richard Wolf's book, The Sickness of the System. Make sure you become a Patreon of Democracy at Work, all of which... I believe can be accomplished by going to democracyatwork.info. There'll be a link down in the right. description of the episode. 
Make sure you get down there. I mean, seriously, what are you doing with your life, guys? Yeah, what are you doing? Come on. Hit that button. You just quit your job. <laughs> we already heard from Dr. Wolf just now. You've already quit your job. You got nothing to do. Click that link. Check it out. <laughs> you could afford to not have a Starbucks latte just like on ours. Like the same sales pitch. <laughs> yep. Starbucks lattes around maybe even more than $5 now. I don't know. You know, that's that's, that's not much a month to, to sacrifice there. Yeah, I, for amazing I, economic analysis. Yeah, I sacrificed it for uh, democracy at work, so right. I don't even care what the Starbucks costs anymore. All right. Yep. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Wolf, for coming on. It's been amazing. Uh, really, and my pleasure and my hat off, if I wore one, uh, to you for doing this, for making these programs, for having these conversations. The audience is now ready in this country. The history has prepared them. We need more of you to be out there explaining, talking, raising these questions. It's the most important thing I can think of of doing. So please know that many of us appreciate that you're part of doing this kind of thing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. It means a lot. The money's not to be on the cow's not to be his freedom and liberty and access to a land Get rid of this abusive uh, government. It's free real estate. dice que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos junto a activistas aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de space.